Hello and welcome to this week's Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. I'm joined in studio by my Irish Times colleagues, Mark Paul, Kieran Hancock and Barry O'Halloran. It's been an absolutely jam-packed business week. Uh, we've had one of the country's oldest companies dating back to 1919. It's, it's had an offer of over a billion euros. Uh, we've had the return of two of the most prominent developers of the boom, Paddy McKillen and Johnny Ronan. And we've had further on the sad and ongoing fall of an Irish business great, Tony O'Reilly, as well as uh, plans by Aircom to return to the stock exchange. Kieran, I'll start with you first. Uh, your column this week is on uh, Aircom, um, which mm. has been a, a fascinating company for investors down the years. Uh, what's the latest? Well, the latest is, Tom, that Aircom is considering an IPO. Uh, so it's considering going back to the stock market. It's been on the stock market um, twice before in the past 15 years. Um, they've hired uh, about half a dozen corporate advisors um, to help them review strategy and to see how they might um, get some value out of the business. And the most obvious thing to do is go for an IPO. That's not to say that a trade buyer mightn't emerge, um, but it would it would appear that they're lining up an IPO in September, uh, probably with a dual listing in Dublin and London, and seeking to raise something like a billion euro, uh, which would then be used to pay down debt. It has debts of about €2 billion, euro, which is owed to the bondholders who took over the company a couple of years ago. And Aircom, uh, Aircom you describe in your column as something of a pyramid scheme for investors. Uh, what do you mean there, Kieran? Well, effectively, Aircom was a, a living, breathing business uh, when it was privatised in 1999 by the state, if you like. Um, and then over the years, a bunch of uh, private investors uh, pick, picked at it um, to realise money uh, for themselves and to realise uh, a gain on their investment. And over the years, you know, various actions took place. For example, they sold um, they sold their mobile phone business, um, which became which was bought by Vodafone, is now the biggest mobile player in the market. And um, they sold various sort of divisions. They sold various properties and um, so on and so forth. And, and this money um, largely went to the shareholders who owned the business at the time. But as time went on, there was less money. There was more debt piled on the business, and there was less money to be. Um, sucked out of the business, if you like. And uh, at the end, the likes of Babcock and Brown and STT, a Singapore-based um, company, which was the last owner of um, of Aircom before it went into examinership in 2012, they effectively got burnt in and terms of their investment. Mark Paul, I mean, it's been sort of revolving uh, chairs uh, in terms of ownership of Aircom. Mm-hmm. But, uh, w- w- you know, for the consumer, I mean, what has it meant all this constantly changing ownership, constantly changing management structures in and out of examinership at one point in well, 2012? Well, well, what it's meant <clears throat> over the course of several years is that Aircom really has fallen behind its uh, its peers in terms of investment. I mean, UPC um, and went around the outside of Aircom and, and, and ended up miles in front of it when UPC put about 750 million euros into, into building out their... Um, their, uh, their 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 Irish network, so um, so so the effect that it's had on consumers really is that Aircom has fallen behind. Uh, it's trying to play catch up now, and it, you know it's the first onto the quad play market, um, and we've heard an awful lot about that. And um, they've set aside uh, a certain amount of money, I think about six or seven hundred million euros, to invest in fibre um, over the next couple of years. And 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 you know Aircom has been playing catch up really as a result of all the kind of financial uh, 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 engineering that's gone on with the company over but the last actually, couple of years. Tom, uh, you interviewed Michael. 
Murfit um, some weeks back when he uh, launched his book. I think a lot of people would say that the last big investment by Aircom, you know, up until this point when they're doing the e-fibre, was when he was chairman back in the mid-1980s and they skipped a generation of technology and it brought Ireland, this is when it was still in state ownership, it brought Ireland to a point where we actually had some cutting-edge uh, phone technology and it was part of the reason why a lot of uh, foreign multinationals were attracted to Ireland at the time because the phone systems and the connectivity and so on was pretty good. But after that, as Mark said, there was huge underinvestment, uh, both by the state and its private owners over a period of time, and it's fallen way behind the curve. And actually, Aircom, if I'm not mistaken, was a part owner of CableLink, which was the core business of, which is now the core business of UPC, but CableLink, again, there was massive underinvestment in CableLink over the years. It was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of a joke, really, when uh, it was taken over by Liberty. And, you know, bringing the, bringing the company back to the stock market, um, you know, most of the money, it seems from your column, Kieran, is going to be used to pay down debt and, and, and do some financial engineering. Uh, do we get any sense that any of this money is actually going to go towards delivering better services for consumers or making Ireland more competitive versus, you know, versus like California. No, I don't think it will directly. I don't think a red cent is going to go into the business. I think it's going to be used to streamline the capital structure of the company. Uh, in other words, to repay the bondholders. I suppose we should say that the bondholders uh, two years ago, they did they did lose money. Um, they did have to take a haircut on their debt at the time. Aircom had debts at just over €4 billion. Euro. They were reduced to just over €2 billion. Euro. Now, it was mostly junior bondholders who lost out, but some of the senior guys also had to take a bit of a haircut. But what it will do is it will reduce the annual in- interest bill that Aircom is paying on its debt. So I suppose indirectly, that money, you would imagine, will be used um, to help fund the ongoing activities of the business. And Barry, uh, we all remember 10 or 15 years ago, everyone was being told, you know, Aircom's a sure thing. You should, you, should, you should think about buying some shares here. Like, what would be your sense overall? I mean, is it a company that, you, you know, you think that the smaller investors should look at in September if, if it's brought to the stock market? Really, I think it's a case of once bit and twice shy. It seems to me, like the, the point you've made earlier there, that, that the, the money they're going to raise is simply going to be used to pay down debt. It doesn't really look like they're actually going to, to, to spend anything on developing the business and building it out. And uh, you, you don't really see much upside for, for a small player in that case. And Kieran, at the end of your column, you've got a very interesting line where you say, if only there were an Irish telecoms billionaire with a track record in building businesses from scratch and the vision to push new technologies who could step into the breach. Uh, anyone in mind there? <laughs> well, I suppose if you were of a certain mind, you might think of a certain Dennis O'Brien who uh, won the second mobile phone licence and built the ESAT business. Uh, I'll be with some controversy, as we know, um, from the tribunal inquiries uh, back in the day. And... He, I mean, if anything, it was it was Dennis O'Brien, to be fair to him, who pushed the idea of mobile phones and this idea that everybody from the youngest person to the oldest would have a mobile phone round about now. And at the time, we thought he was mad. We thought he was talking through his hat. But actually, he's been proved right. And in fact, it's gone a lot further than even he predicted back then when he was trying to win that second mobile phone licence. Aircom, in fact, had the, had the first one. They were the monopolist um, at the time. But he's gone on since then and he's built um, a business in the Caribbean and in the South Pacific and in Central America called Digicel. Uh, it's very successful um, it's, it's quite profitable it's made him a lot of money uh, other people might argue that uh, it's a company that's now loaded with an awful lot of debt a bit like Aircom in a way uh, but nonetheless it's a it's a company that's performing it seems to have a lot of um, support internationally the ratings agencies seem to like it and so on you know he's been very successful obviously he's been successful in other businesses as well but he's really made his name and his fortune out of telecoms 
And Mark Paul, I mean, Dennis O'Brien famously lost out to Tony O'Reilly in, in the previous battle for control of Aircom. And we saw Tony O'Reilly take a lot of money off the table there. And as Kieran said, I mean, there wasn't much investment. Uh, do, you, do you think the company looking back, could it have been, could it have done better in the hands of somebody like Dennis O'Brien versus the, the financiers? Well, I suppose it's all very hypothetical. You'd have to imagine, uh, though, that if Dennis O'Brien did get a hold of it, and when you, when you look at the job that he's done with DigiSale, the amount of investment that he's put in uh, to that company, the way he he's rolled it out the way he's been you know kind of ahead of the market in terms of some of the products that he's offered in, in the region perhaps it would have done better under Dennis O'Brien's ownership I suppose we'll never know um, um, you know I mean I, I'd have to agree with Kieran that Dennis O'Brien if, if, if they were looking for a kind of a trade buyer or, or, or a single person to come in and, and buy the thing Dennis O'Brien will be, uh, will be you know certainly one that will be on a lot of people's lips another one will be a, a Russian guy called Mikhail Friedman who owns the Alpha Group um, who earlier on this month um, 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 told the market that he was looking for um, heavily indebted European telcos to buy for more than a billion euros uh, and that he was looking at five such five of these such deals. Um, um, now, we asked Michael Friedman whether he liked to buy Aircom and he, uh, he, he declined to answer us. But um, um, that's another possibility. It should be said that Dennis O'Brien looked at uh, Aircom, buying Aircom, before it went into examinership in early um, 2012. But I think he just decided he walked away from it on the basis that there were too many legacy issues there. Um, to be dealt with and he just wasn't prepared to give it the time or the energy um, to, to, to really take it on um, Dennis O'Brien I suppose traditionally a lot of his businesses wouldn't exactly be um, union friendly and trade unions have traditionally had a, um, a strong foothold in Aircom so that would have been an interesting uh, an interesting battle had it happened but if he had if he had taken over the business and indeed he might even emerge now as a as a buyer because they you know there is talk of a, a trade player um, or a an individual, you know, a wealthy individual coming forward, or a private equity player coming forward. So it is, it, you know, it is possible that he might be interested in Aircom this time around. And Mark Paul, I mean, we spoke about Tony O'Reilly there. I mean, he he was he was he was again in court uh, this week, uh, going through the, the 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 rather humiliating experience at the moment. I mean, can you just outline like what were the broad uh, points that were made in the court case on Monday, and how has this story progressed since uh, you first broke it a couple of weeks ago? Well, the first, you know, the first thing that, that that really stands out from what happened in court on Monday is the word insolvency. I mean, it was it was said in court on several occasions that. Tony O'Reilly uh, now has debts of 195 million and is effectively insolvent. I mean, that's just an incredible thing to hear from from you know the man who was you know through through the last two or three decades uh, and right at the top table of Irish business. What happened on Monday is that Tony O'Reilly um, consented to judgment being entered against him. Um, from AIB of 22 million euros but what he has asked the court to do is to put a stay of six months on, on, on its regi- registration and execution um, um, and because he wants to be able to sell off his assets themselves and to divide those between a number of banks um, it's not just AIB here AIB are the only ones involved in the case but there are eight or nine other banks um, 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 to which he owes money and there has been a kind of a a standstill agreement negotiated by Bernard Summers on behalf of uh, Tony O'Reilly with the banks um, where it was agreed that look you know nobody's going to jump the fence we'll all just creep forward and we'll take money pro rata as assets are sold and we'll do it in a controlled way AIB um, um, you've got to say Perhaps they got tired of this uh, strategy. Perhaps they got worried that uh, that another bank would jump into court first and try and get ahead of the queue. Um, so that's precisely what AIB have done. Um, and uh, uh, they're, uh, they're trying to secure their position. Uh, the judge uh, will give his, uh, his, 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 his answer to this on, on Friday as to whether or not he will give a six-month stay. Um, and and re- really, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's 
the ignominy of this for Tony O'Reilly must be uh, must be must be difficult for him to bear. Um, but um, you know he's faced up to the fact that he owes the money. He's not trying to get out of paying it. Um, but uh, he really just wants six months to be able to sell things himself rather than have um, a, 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 you know a, some sort of a court appointed official do it on his behalf. It was certainly rough stuff. I mean, I was there in court and, uh, you know, the AIB was dismissing his plans as unrealistic. Uh, at one point, they said it was as likely as uh, Spock coming back in Star Trek uh, from the dead or somewhere like that. Which uh, he did. Yeah. He did. That did actually did happen. Which he did. But they said that's it's as likely as that happening in the real world as it was in, in, in a science fiction movie. Uh, the, the Irish Independent, I mean, in its coverage, Barry, um, which was very accurate, but it was also, I mean, it didn't hold back. I mean, it described him as broke on page one. Uh, did you think that that was something you'd ever see in your time as a business journalist, that, you know, a paper which would be so associated with him, uh, you know, called it as it, as, it, as it is? Quite frankly, no. Quite the opposite. I mean, I, I have to say myself, I, I never envisaged the day when I would, when I would see Tony O'Reilly being broke, no matter who was saying it on their front page. Um, and when uh, Mark Brooks' story a few weeks ago did actually come as a surprise to me, I was aware that he'd taken a big hit on Waterford Crystal and a number of other things. But the sort of the depths of his troubles um, did actually come as a bit of a shock, I have to say. And Kieran, one of the things they're saying is, you know, Castle Martin, which would have been somewhere where, you know, he would have wined and dined presidents, Taoiseachs, editors. Uh, you know, it, it does look like it's going to come on, onto the market. Do you expect that there's going to be much interest there? Hard to say. I suppose it depends on the selling price. Uh, if it's pitched at the right price, there probably will. There's a lot of private equity money floating about and a lot of um, million, multi-millionaires and uh, billionaires from various parts of the world looking to invest their money uh, in Ireland. It's a prized asset. It's a trophy asset, so it might appeal to somebody like that. I think it probably has restricted development potential, so I'm not sure if it's the kind of asset that you could sweat uh, from a commercial point of view. I think it's more a trophy asset that would appeal to um, a very wealthy person. Well, we, we, we do have some idea as to what Tony O'Reilly thinks it's worth because um, um, Tony O'Reilly's lawyers told the court that they believe if Castle Martin was sold, it will clear all of his AIB debts with a little bit left over, perhaps for his other creditors. Now, his AIB debt is 22.6 million euros. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe he's looking to try and get 25 million for it or something like that. But perhaps it would be of interest to, um, to, to horse breeders, to, to the likes of your Coolmores and companies like that? Well, I, I wouldn't see Coolmore necessarily moving in there, but you could see the big Qatari players, the, the people who are making all the money out of liquid uh, natural gas at the moment, and they're big investors in European bloodstock at the moment. You could certainly see somebody like Sheikh Joanne coming in there and running the rule over the place because it's ideally situated. Um, for, for, and you really can't do much else other than farm that land, as far as I'm aware. And, 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 you know, he, he, he's already started to sell down other assets. I mean, I mean, Kieran wrote a story a number of weeks ago that, um, that his townhouse in Fitzwilliam Square is for sale. That's since been sold, actually, since that story was published for, uh, for about 900 grand more than, than, than they were seeking. So it's been sold for well over 3 million euros. Um, um, you know, Tony O'Reilly, is. Uh, it, 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 we get a sense that he's been dribbling artworks onto the market. Um, he still owns Fitzwilton, um, or sorry, a half share of Fitzwilton. He owns it with his brother-in-law, Peter Galandris, and Fitzwilton's main investment is a, is a, is a motorway signage company called Renix, um, which has a turnover of about 30 or 40 million euros a year. So it's a significant business. He has his home in the Bahamas, um, um, which is, you know, quite a trophy home, uh, which is in the same development as Joe Lewis, who owns Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. So it's kind of billionaire's row. Um, so he owes 195 million euros in total, Tony O'Reilly. Um, his assets clearly won't come up to that, otherwise he wouldn't have been described as insolvent in court. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he really he wants six months now to try and tie this all up himself. And Barry, I mean, Tony O'Reilly is married to... 
Chris, Lady Chris Gulandris, who is, you know, some, or, or Chris O'Reilly, I should say, uh, who's somebody very independently wealthy herself. I mean, you, you, you met uh, both her and uh, Tony O'Reilly at some point. Uh, very briefly now um, and the, the, I'm afraid to say that the only discussion I had with them was in relation to their race horses and, uh, whereupon Tony O'Reilly told me he looked, that I looked far too tall to be a jockey which at 6'3 is probably fairly accurate um, what, I, what I'd say about her is that yeah she, her, her own family have a very very uh, the Goulandres family are very very wealthy themselves and in fact the horse breeding operation at Castle Martin is mainly driven by her she's a former chair of the Irish National Stud very successful owner breeder and she also has a stud farm in Normandy which was which I think originally belonged to her uncle which is called La Louvier so she's very much a heavy hitter in the in the bloodstock market and I actually think that if that property were to go on the market the fact that she was involved in it would be a bonus from the point of view of people in that industry. Well, we're going to have to wait and see how that story plays out. Uh, one of the other stories of the week, uh, Mark Paul, was to do with uh, Johnny Ronan and Paddy McKillen and developers making comebacks. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, how big a comeback do you think that they're actually making or, or are they really frontmen for, for various funds? Well, um, um, obviously for Johnny Ronan, look, he, he, he's a highly skilled individual um, and whether he's a frontman or whether he's not, he'll still have an impact on whatever developments he gets involved in. Um, um, okay, and he went down in flames like a lot of developers in terms of uh, the debts they accrued on NAMA and the, the, uh, the, the, the restraints that put on him. But, um, but, 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 you know, the, the, the skills that he acquired over the years, the deals that he was involved in, um, um, uh, you know, that's, that's unencumbered in one sense as well and it's, it's ready for use in other projects. So whether or not uh, 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 he turns up as a front man somewhere, um, you know, I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll be a valued partner of somebody. And Kieran, you broke the story a couple of years ago that his development company, Treasury Holdings, that NAMA was going to to move against it, uh, which uh, caused all sorts of consternation and it sent him wild by all accounts. Uh, what? How do you view him as a developer? I mean, how good is he? Uh, you know, obviously he borrowed too much money or his companies borrowed too much money, but like, how good a developer is he actually? Well, I remember doing an interview uh, with John Bruder, who was the who was running the executive running um, uh, Treasury around the time that NAMA took the enforcement action against him, which is the biggest enforcement action they've taken to date. I think Treasury was the second or third biggest debtor they had in their books. And John, John's point was, you know, whatever else you might think about Johnny Ronan, he built good buildings and he built them to a very good spec. Um, and there were buildings that lasted, not like a lot of the rubbish that was built in the boom years. Um, and I've heard that from other people as well. So, again, you know, whatever you might think of his business dealings and so on, and um, certainly, you know, the way things progressed between NAMA and Treasury, the way that all worked out, KBC ended up taking, KBC Bank ended up taking the winding up petition and so on. You know, there was a sense that Treasury was stringing them along and so on, and this is why it all came to a head and enforcement action was taken. So whatever about his actions, uh, you know, corporately with Treasury, um, it it, it it has been said by many people that the buildings um, that were built by Treasury were good quality and that he took a very close interest himself in fixtures and fittings and the design and layout and stuff like that. And as a result, the buildings, you know, will sort of stand the test of time, unlike a lot of other um, developments around around Dublin and around Ireland. 
Yeah, well, I think that you you can see in the Google building or in Connacht House, you know, that these are buildings which... And the Periscourt Hotel, I mean, what was built as a Ritz-Carlton Hotel with the Periscourt Hotel that was developed by um, Treasury Holdings on, on the Periscourt Estate in Enniscarry. I mean, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal building. I mean, it's 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 architecturally renowned. It's a beautiful building. If you look at the Western Hotel as well, um, quite close here to the Irish Times offices, um, I actually I used to work in the Western Hotel when it first opened um, about uh, about 12 years ago. And it, it, it opened about 165 bedrooms, but it was said there was about 163 different room shapes in it because there was no sense of um, uh, everything had to be done on a bespoke basis because they retained the old facade. So as Kieran said, um, um, Treasury Holdings and Johnny Ronan were you know, developers that put an awful lot of thought into their buildings. Well, clearly, uh, Development Securities and Colony Capital, who are two of the funds backing uh, McKillen and uh, Johnny Ronan, uh, believe that they're capable of doing it all again. Uh, just, Barry, to look at one last story today, uh, there, there, there's this uh, Kent's, one of the, country, the country's oldest companies, dating back to 19, started in electrical contracting. Uh, this week, it's received a bid of over, over a billion euros. Uh, what exactly is going on there? Well, the, the bid is from a large Canadian player called SNC. Um, and what Kent's is now a global business, and it, it's 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 rather it's it's rather difficult really to describe it as as specifically an Irish business. It's majority owned by uh, a Malaysian operation which flies under the flag of Kerbet Limited. Um, they rescued that business from examinership back in 1994, when it was then known as when it was still known as MF Kent. At that point, it had borrowed very heavily against contract payments that were due to it in Spain, but which never materialised. It was one of the first of the big high-profile examinerships. Um, it was rescued. The banks lost about four million, and the bulk of the business then, if you like. The, the focus of the business really shifted to the Far East and to the Middle East, where it, where it was concentrating on servicing the exploration and mineral extraction industries, primarily floated in 2007. It's been more or less onwards and upwards for the business since then. And um, it, it's, I think it's one of the interesting aspects of, of the bid is that one of the, the markets that um, the then chief executive, Kent's Hugh O'Donnell, said they would target when the business floated in 2007 was Canada and North America. And while they've made really great progress in the Pacific Rim and in the Middle East, they haven't made as much progress in, in Canada. And it's now a Canadian player, a, a very big Canadian player in its own industry that is that is bidding to buy it. Now, th- that is the first bid that's on the table. There is some suggestion that, you know, a, another one may materialise. So there, there could be a, a long way to go in this one yet. And do you think that, you know, you know, in terms of the, the Canadians and this Irish company, uh, you, you know, like, like, is it fair to describe it as really an Irish company anymore? And uh, will it have an impact if it is sold on, on Clonmel? I think it will. I mean, it, there, it still has an operation in Clonmel and, and a lot of the, I mean, well, it's, it's not doing any of its, its physical contracting work here. A lot of the business is certainly run and managed out of Clonmel. So it, it could well have an impact there. But that, that is something that will really come out in the wash. We, it, it's far too early to say at this, at this point in proceedings that, yes, it's going to have a knock-on effect in Ireland. But I think what we can say is that realistically it won't be in any way an Irish company once this deal is done if it does go ahead. I think there are probably other examples of other Irish companies, you know, I say Irish in inverted commas, um, that effectively have their operations overseas but are managed out of Ireland. And Greencore is, is effectively one. You know, all its um, food operations are based in the UK or the United States. But the company is is led out of Ireland. It has offices in, in Dublin and all the, you know, all the sort of senior marketing people and so on salespeople. Tullow Oil is another, yeah, absolutely. And then there are, you know, there are a clatter of small resource companies 
um, run by John Teeling and David Horgan and their associates um, that again are, are managed and controlled out of Clontarf but have all of their activities overseas, you know, drilling or appraising um, wells or whatever in the Middle East or North Africa and so forth. The only difference here, I suppose, is that the buyer has its own infrastructure and its own HQ and it would be a question of whether they'd absorb the Kent's uh, HQ function into their operations. Well, look, Barry O'Halloran, Kieran Hancock and Mark Paul of the Irish Times, uh, thanks for coming on this week's programme to discuss uh, the important stories of the week. And that's it for this week's Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. Uh, My producer was Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer was JJ Vernon.